This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. And now a quick word from our sponsor. I've used Zencaster software for well over two years now and become very fond of not only the technology but the company and its people as they've been with me along my entire journey. The podcasting industry has grown a lot in that time too with projections showing that by 2030 it'll be worth well over $150 billion. More than 30,000 passionate creators now use Zencaster to create, grow and monetize their podcasts. It's the ideal platform to record, produce and analyze all in one place. Now you can be a part of the journey as Zencaster has announced crowdfunding. From as little as $100, you can join a community of other investors who seek to help Zencaster and independent podcasters succeed. If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description below to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. Were you still fearing fear at this point? What was the you've you've had the sedation, the sleepiness, the fear. Now you've got this this memory of being on board and this this other entity locks eyes. Do you remember feeling scared? Did you feel drained? You're you're asking about my level of fear. If yeah. I understand. Do you remember? Was there still a feeling of sedation at this point? Or oh no, no no. Unfortunately, the sedation was all gone. I would have loved to have had some sedation. I was absolutely terrified. I, I absolutely was the most afraid I'd ever been in my life. Uh, I didn't know their intention. Had they given me some slight bit of intention, like, you know, relax, uh, you're here, we're just doing some studying, uh, you know, we'll be done with you shortly and uh, we'll get you on your way. And who knows, they may have told me that. And I just have no memory of it. Uh, but at the time I saw this guy walk across my field of vision, I had no idea what I was there for. I had no idea if they were going to dissect us, eat us. I had no idea what was going on. So I was absolutely, uh, absolutely terrified. And one more thing before you move on and continue, because this is really important. I think many people when discussing abduction experiences will tell you that the beings are very reassuring, that they have that over, overwhelming sense of calm, that it's a very almost pleasant experience. Yet you hear other experiences, like you say, you might not remember, but people like Whitley Strieber, Calvin Parker, don't have pleasant experiences. It's very much against their will. They're scared, they're frightened, they're anxious. They have... They have uh, procedures carried out on them, which they did not want. And why do you think those experience, experiences can differ from person to person? You know, that's a great question because it does. Uh, experiences differ from person to person. It'd be a lot more helpful if we all had the same story because we could all bolster one another's experience. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Everybody has a little bit... Everybody has a different experience. The reason that I think that they had us sedated um, initially, well, I don't know. But the reason for that wasn't for our comfort. It was for their ease in handling us. And that, that's what I believe. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't for our comfort. It was done... Uh, they struck me as being, you know, very pragmatic, matic. Uh, and I, and I, while I didn't see them go out of their way to be uh, malicious uh, toward me, uh, I, I guess I would describe them. They were benign, and what we ex what we experienced, pain wise and fear wise, was uh, what I'd call collateral damage. It was unintentional, but it uh, it happened nonetheless. You know, I had a lot of anger and a lot of resentment toward these things after the event. And uh, but you know, that's it, been so long ago. It's been part of my life for forty years. Uh, I've come to accept what had happened to me. It helps. Uh, I had no idea until 2018 when I wrote this book and published it that there were so many people that have had similar experiences. It's very helpful to know that I'm not alone, that there are others out there who, who've had their experience too. 
do you think it points to there being a range of beings or entities carrying out these abductions when you have some people, like I say, having pleasant experiences and other people having less pleasant experiences? It, would it make sense that you have one set of beings who are nicer and one set of beings who are not as nice, shall we say? Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. That, that, that makes sense. I, I think that there are, who knows, dozens, hundreds, thousands, who knows? How we, we have no way to know of different races, species of entities. Um, and these non-human entities um, come to us with all kinds of intentions. Now, I, I know uh, Linda Moulton Howe, who uh, did a lot of research in regard to cattle mutilations from western part of the United States. And uh, she has some frightening stories of what these poor animals were subjected to. And the amount of um, the number of cattle abductions just is in, incredible. Uh, and and it, it, you wonder, how could this happen? How can this, how can this possibly happen? But, but it does. Uh, and it's the same with human beings. Human beings disappear way more often than they should. Hundreds, you know. There are lots of people like Rodney Letterman go out for a walk in a in a, in a state or national forest, and they're just they're just gone. And um, and our government keeps those numbers secret, as David Pilates will tell you. Um, there there is you can't go and get a list of who's missing. Uh, they won't share that information with you. Uh, and if you try to file a Freedom of Information Act and get information, they will um, say, sure, we can help you out, but there's going to be a bill for that. And, and the, raw, the law is written where they can, they can charge reasonable uh, uh, charges for cost of reproducing the documents and postage and that and the like. Uh, but they came back and told David Pilates, yeah, we can send you the file. It'd be about $17,000. Um, and just, you know, did everything they did to kind of go through looking like they're trying to comply, but there was no genuine compliance there whatsoever. So uh, somebody at some level knows what's going on, uh, or at least they know that this is going on. They may not know the backstory, but... Um, well, I think we're going to get there with your story too, because the Office of Special Investigations comes in, but there was probably a little bit more before we get there. So you're you're on board the craft and you're straining, you've locked eyes, you feel you're getting a connection with this other entity, he's inside your head or it's inside your head. Yes. What happens from that point? I, I don't have a memory of what happened. Uh, I just have little vignettes. Uh and so there's a gap, and then I have a vignette of uh, a scene of seeing, uh, and this confused me, about, um, about eight people. Uh, they were young. They were our age. They were 18 to 22 years of age. They were dressed in tan-colored flight suits. They had combat boots that looked an awful lot like mine, um, they're a fair distance away, so they're not close enough that I can get a great look at them. But these are absolutely human beings. I mean, by all appearance, these are human beings. And they carried themselves like they were crew members, like they belonged there. Um, there were seven men and one woman. Um, and the, um, they all wore short military-style haircuts uh, the woman had her hair pulled back in a ponytail, uh, and there was a red patch on the shoulder, left shoulder of their uniforms, a round patch with uh, that was, I said red, it was more of an orange color with white writing on it that I couldn't discern. I was too far away to see it. I went as far as to, uh, my, my good friend is a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, a medical doctor, and uh, he knows my story, and he asked me if I'd care to be hypnotized to see if I could read or describe or draw what was on those patches. Hmm. And I said that I didn't want to be 
I didn't want to relive the entire thing. But if we could very narrow in scope, try to take me back where I could read those patches, I'd, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. So it took a couple attempts, but he finally, I got relaxed and I think that I was in that meditative state, um, but they were just too far away. I, okay. I, I couldn't tell you what was, what was on them. I wish I could. At least you attempted that though. And that's something that, again, we've, we've seen Whitley Strieber and his regression tapes that have been played and the, the harrowing screams that, that come out of them are just are almost inhuman. And that's something that if people haven't heard. It's on, it's on various documentaries, but also on his website, I believe, as well. Um, it's not a pleasant thing to have to go back and relive. Were there any other of these kind of, I'm thinking in modern terms, it's like YouTube shorts or vignettes, as you call them, these these short bursts or clips of memories. What else do you remember? Or is it a case of then you're, you're kind of back in the tent? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple things I should include real quick. They're short. Um, I forgot to mention that while I was holding on to my clothing, before this person walked or this entity walked past me and got my attention, I'm holding on, I'm looking around, and there were, on my left, there were a row of flying discs, uh, metallic, aluminum-like discs, lined up like, you know, like airplanes on a, on a, underneath a carrier, you know, and a, and a hangar. They, they were lined up, and there were these huge garage door-looking things uh, that I guess that they used to go and come, uh, the other thing that I saw where there were multiple levels, this thing was very high. I could not see the ceiling because I could not tip my head back, but there were multiple levels of rails all around this thing. So it was huge. It was enormous. Uh, I saw a vehicle that looked like a, a golf cart uh, that had no wheels. I could see no visible way for it to move, but it moved and it was carrying some gray guys in it and they were just, Moving along, I didn't make any noise. Um, to my right, I saw, I don't know how many there were, because I could only see the first row, uh, maybe uh, a dozen human beings like us, only these weren't, these were a mix of men, women, and children. And I have no idea who they were or how they got there. Uh, and they, my first thought was, I'm glad I'm not part of their party. I'm glad we're, they, we were segregated off to the side. Uh, these people were in distress. They were paralyzed, but they were in distress. Um, their eyes were all moving all over the place because they're trying to drink in their surroundings just like I was. And they're all crying. Every single one of them uh, is crying. I was probably crying. Uh, but these people looked like they were in distress. And I don't know, you know, there could have been 100 people in queue in back of them, or it could have just been the dozen or so that I could see. I have no idea how many people there were. Uh, but I know this. Those people must have been there when they took us on board. And I don't know where those people came from. And I don't know where they went, but when this thing left, they went with them. Um, and that's, that's troubled me to this day is, I guess, survivor guilt or, or whatever. And I just wonder what happened to those people. So. Have you ever heard a case where someone has had an abduction? And I wonder even yourself where they've then heard of someone else being abducted on the same date. The same place wouldn't necessarily matter because that that could have been a family from Brazil, or you know, God, I'm just Japan, somewhere else on the planet, and you just happen to be on the same craft as them. Which then, in a later time, you meet, and yeah, we were abducted on the same date, same time. Anything like that? I think happened? that's right. I, I I think that's right. You know what I did was in the back of incident at Devil's Den, I put my email address. You know, Terry Lovelace at yahoo.com. You want to email me? I'm you know, I return all my emails. Um, I ask if you've had an experience and you want to share it, you know, write to me. And I've had now over 4,000 people write to me uh, sharing their experience. And 
I, I did a spreadsheet looking for commonalities. And a couple of the commonalities that I noticed was, you mentioned families being abducted. I had a lot of people write to me and say, you know, we were, one of the ones that sticks out is a, a family that was on vacation. They're in a car park. They're going, they're either going or coming. And um, they recall seeing a thing in the sky. They recall seeing a silver disc in the sky. Uh, and it was parked and they were all just kind of like, look at that. And then it's gone. And then, but time had passed because it was just getting dusk and then suddenly it was nighttime. Hmm. And they all went back to their room and they went right to sleep. And um, whatever happened, happened to all of them. I think there were six in total. Um, but this, this was very common. I had people tell me that in, in these abductions, just like my relationship with my friend Toby changed after this event, where this guy was my best friend in the world. I really didn't care to be around him. I did not want to talk to him about this event. And, and that's real common. Uh, this, this one family, like I said, had the six of them had this experience and uh, they were at a, a a dinner, some kind of uh, holiday dinner. And, uh, you know, uh, Uncle Joe, everybody's got an Uncle Joe, right? Uncle Joe speaks up and says, uh, hey, any of you guys remember when we were on vacation in that parking lot, we saw that thing in the sky? And everybody at the table stopped. It was just silence. Uh, a couple of people excused themselves. Um, you know, Uncle Joe was the only one that had any appetite after that. Uh, but people are just reticent. They're reluctant. They don't want to talk about it. And again, I think it speaks to the level of influence that these things have over us. Well, let's carry on from there, Terry. You're, thanks for letting me sidetrack you for a few minutes with some of those questions, but I felt it was a good place to ask them. What happens next in your own experience? The last, again, I called it a vignette. The last thing I remember was we were taken... Um, they came, the little gray guys came and they took Toby. Um, one of them took his belongings, clothing and, and shoes. I don't know what they, boots. I don't know what they did with them, but took them from him. And then he was, they rolled him like he, he was, it was like he had, you know, skates on or something. They rolled him across the flooring and, uh, he went somewhere down a hallway and a some while later, I heard him scream and recognized his voice. And he said, no, 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 no. And then he screamed. And, um, and I was, that was just over the top for me. I, and I, because I knew it was going to be my turn next. And sure enough, it was. And they came and they took my belongings. And um, I couldn't feel the soles of my feet against the floor. It was like a, a cushion of air or something. And they just glided me down, down toward a hallway that went to the left. And I went down this hallway. And on my right, again, I, I can only move my eyes. On my right, I could see what looked like uh, fish aquariums uh, in varying sizes from small to big enough for a human being to be in. And in one of these aquariums was what I took to be a puppy. It looked like a puppy. It had, you know how, you know how newborn puppies have the wrinkles, rolls of skin. Mm. It had that, the water was pink. There was an umbilical cord floating in the water and as they're rolling me down this hallway, I'm looking at this thing, thinking, what is it? And it opened an eye. And uh, I could see it was a, a, an eye. There was a sclera, the white part of the eye, an iris and a pupil. It was a, uh, but it wasn't a human eye. It was an animal-like eye. And at the end of this hallway was an arched door. And I went into this room, and it had a domed ceiling 
everything was white. Most everything in this thing was either stainless steel, white, or gray in color. And there was an exam table there. And they picked me up, levitated me somehow horizontal, and I'm on this exam table. And I, I want to make it clear that as frightening as this sounds, I got this genuine medical clinical vibe to it. It, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't expecting a torture session. Mm-hmm. Like I say, there was some kind of medical, clinical, sterile, uh, procedural vibe to it that, um, you know, I think if, if, if I could have got them to answer my questions, I think they'd say, you know, just doing my job, man. I mean, it had yeah, that prof- kind of It was feel professional. It. it was skilled. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, they, whatever they did, they did something to my lower back. And it hurt a lot. And through clenched teeth, because I can't open my mouth, I'm screaming. The things that are working on me are, they look like a praying mantis. Eight, nine feet tall. I can't tell because I'm on a table, but they're big. Um, And they have insectoid-like hands. And they have digits that come off their arms, and they're manipulating multiple stainless steel objects. And there are objects that are just hanging in the air uh, that are tools of some kind. And they're doing something to my lower back. And again, it hurt and I'm screaming. And I think that I annoyed this thing. Uh, and and I, get a, I get a lot of flack about this because people say, oh, no, they don't do that. Well, they do do that. They did it to me. This, this insectoid thing that had a large triangular shaped head with a multi-lensed, multifaceted eyes turned its head toward me and it spoke to me telepathically and I heard it in my head and it said, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. You know, we don't hurt you. You know, we take you back now. Stop screaming. And he reached over and tapped me on the forehead with the green digit and I was out. I don't know why they couldn't have done that to start with, you know, but they, but they didn't. And then the final memory that I had was uh, I'm semi-conscious. I'm aware that Toby is to my side. We're in the grass. We're in the field somewhere. And I had the thought they screwed up. They should have put us back in our tent. And I no sooner had that thought than little gray guys came and they picked us up and I lost consciousness again and they threw us back in the tent. And then my next memory from that was waking up to the flashing lights and that kind of brings us full circle. I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. I've had my Paperlike on the iPad now for a few months and wonder already how I ever done without it. One of the biggest differences for me is how much better the iPad screen looks. The reflection without the Paperlike on long train journeys or in the office was pretty bad. But now watching movies and TV shows is a far more pleasant experience. There just isn't that shine bouncing off the screen. Taking notes and writing podcast shows is also transformed as it feels like it says I am writing onto paper. Paper, thanks to the nano dot technology, tiny microbeads designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. Perfect for designing your next hobby balloon to be shot down by the US military. I kid. Paperlike is perfect for anyone who owns an iPad and an Apple Pencil. It's a must-have. They really should put it in with iPads. I'd love to see them get that kind of deal. You do get a set of two when you buy it, so you always have the spare. It's genuinely made me use my iPad more than I did before, so it's given my existing technology a brand new lease of life. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO, click buy Paperlike and select your iPad size. So if you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that ufo to get started so from this point the abduction experience is ended is it now is it morning is a light coming up yet and it's you and toby awake you know we both wore wind up mechanical watches uh as emts we needed it to take a pulse or or uh you know rest measure respirations It, it was kind of um 
integral to the job. Mm. Uh, and in 1977, there really weren't battery-operated watches or very, very many. We had nice wind-up mechanical watches, uh, but they were good quality. Both of our watches had stopped at 240. You know, two, mine was at 240. His might have been 242. They stopped within minutes of one another. Those watches never worked again. So when we woke up, it was dark outside. Uh, we were able to figure out later on that it was right before dawn because it wasn't that long that the sun came up. And uh, so we had no idea what time it was. And we were sitting in the tent. Like I say, we watched the little guys go into the light. We watched this thing take off. Um, again, scared to death they're going to come back. I was so terrified. I didn't want to leave the tent until it was fully daylight. I mean, all I had over my head was a piece of canvas, but I felt like it gave me cover mm. uh, in a military sense. It gave me, I, I was felt hidden and uh, I didn't want to be exposed. I think that's where that, that, that dread that I have of being in open spaces. I think that's where that comes from. And uh, my friend Toby's like, no oh, man, let's go now. Let's get out of here. And I acquiesced and said, all right, let's go. And I grabbed my car keys and my wallet, and he grabbed a flashlight, I think, in his wallet, and we darted from my car, and uh, it started right up. We had to turn the dome light on, and we had to look all in the car. We were paranoid something might be waiting in the car for us. Yeah. And there, there wasn't, of course. And we left, and we left everything there. We left my friend's backpack with all this stuff, his camera in it, uh, clothing. I left my clothing there. Uh, you know, the tent, you know, the blow-up air mattresses, uh, my friend's really nice Coleman cooler. Uh, we didn't care. We were just grateful to be out of there with our lives. And, uh, and was there much conversation between you at this point when you're in the car beside each other? It's a great question because it's weird. Uh, what's weird is that uh, there was minimal conversation because I needed my friends to, he had an excellent, unerring sense of direction. I had none. Um, and he was able to guide us back to Blacktop and get us out of the park um, in the dark. And I don't know how he did that, but he managed that. All I could see on either side of us were just trees, but he knew where to turn. And we were both hurting. Uh, the sun came up shortly thereafter, and we were very photophobic. Uh, we had those burns to the cornea of our eye, I think, from being inside this thing. And our, our eyes hurt, and we had body aches all over. We both had, we both had uh, high fevers. Uh, we were just sick. Uh, and we, uh, we made a pact. We made an agreement where neither one of us would tell anyone what we saw. You know, uh, we didn't want to lie. We had some ethics about us, still do. And we, did, we didn't want to lie. So we said our story would be truthful. We went down there. We set up a campground. We woke up. We felt sick, which is true. We left. We left everything there because we didn't care. We felt ill and we just wanted to go back home. So that was the story that, that we told and never admitted that we saw anything. How do we then get to the point where the Office of Special Investigation are involved? And again, from there, it's not the most pleasant experience, is it? You know, that was, uh, I spent three nights in the hospital and they, they separated us. Um, you know, Toby and I could have no contact with one another. Um, there's a guy named Robert Hastings who wrote a famous book called UFOs and Nukes. Yep. And uh, Robert's a friend of mine. And, uh, he tells me that that's absolutely common. You know, you have two or three active duty military people witness something, they bust them up, they take them, they send them to different parts of the world. They do everything they can to make sure these guys don't reconnect because two people having the same experience, one bolsters the other, and um, they didn't want that to happen. What sort of questions are you being asked? You're both in the hospital, you're under observation. Yes. What's happening? What? Why are you being asked questions in the first place? Yes, the OSI, there were two OSI agents 
um, it was my last evening there and a nurse had come in to give me a, an injection for sleep and they had the, they kept the lights turned off because my eyes were so photophobic and these two guys followed the nurse in and I don't want to stereotype people. I have respect for law enforcement as a former prosecutor. I worked with law enforcement, uh, but these guys were cops. I mean, you could just tell they were cops. They, the way they carried themselves, um, you know, they had the, the, they wore blue suits. They had their uh, suit coats unbuttoned, and you could see the shoulder holster with a weapon. And um, one was about 50 years of age. One was about 30. And they came in and just intimidated me to no end. And um, the one guy had a Southern accent, um, much like Calvin Parker. And uh, he, he said he wanted to know, he said, the park rangers found your little campsite and it looks like you boys were set up to go back. Uh, what were you doing down there? And I said, sir, we just went down there. We went camping and we got, we woke up, we were sick and we came home. And he says, and you left all your stuff. I said, yes, sir, that's right. We left all our stuff. We didn't care about it. And he says, you know what I think? He says, I think you boys might have a little marijuana plot growing down there. Is that what this is all about? Well, you know, that's kind of comical today. But I got to tell you, 1977 to be on active duty, that would have meant a dishonorable discharge yeah. uh, and, and probably some jail time in Leavenworth Penitentiary. Uh, okay. It was that big a deal. So that, that, that scared me. They had me thoroughly intimidated. Um, and uh, they kind of offhand ask, did you see anything unusual when you was down there? No, sir. No, sir. Um, then I had a second interaction with the OSI. And that happened uh, six, maybe eight weeks afterward. Toby had already PCS'd. He'd, over, he'd already been shipped out to Japan. And they called, they summoned me to the OSI headquarters. Uh, and they took me into an interrogation room. And they, um, they hypnotized me. And they gave me a drug. The drug they gave me was called sodium amytal. It's a short-acting hypnotic. Um, OSI used it on hundreds of people back in the 60s and 70s. And it's like sodium pentothal. It'll, uh, it'll put you in a weird place. Uh, now, I knew that I couldn't be hypnotized against my will. I, I felt confident of that. So, but I also knew that they wouldn't allow me to resist. So I covertly resisted the hypnosis. By, uh, he did the progress, the hypnotist did the, hip, the, the, the typical uh, regression thing where, you know, you're gonna, we're gonna go down a flight of stairs now. Take that first step, and he had that voice, like that real smooth voice. Yeah. You know, take that first step, feeling calm, feeling relaxed, relaxed and calm. Take the second step, now twice as relaxed, and he takes you through this progressive relaxation thing. And I tried to do the opposite. I tried to covertly tense my muscles, uh, rather than focus on his questions. I tried to. Uh, give him no more than half of my conscious mind. And in the other half, I was playing, you know, Beatle music, uh, lyrics to Rolling Stones. Yeah. I would do a multiplication tables. I was doing everything that I could think of in my mind um, to keep from giving him my mind. Uh, but the drug I had no, I had no, uh, I had no control over whatsoever. Uh, I take it you gave them all the information at that point because of the drug, anything they asked you, you would have spilled the beans as such. They, 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 they did. And I, I have more memories of what happened to me today because of that. You know, I say that I had these snippets. Well, this brought back uh, more detail, more, more vivid color. I could see these things in my mind's eye in my head mm -hmm. uh, and actually reliving it uh, like the memory that it was. Um, I could see things in much better detail. Why were they asking you these questions? To what end? Was it just to find out exactly what happened? They clearly had an idea that something otherworldly had happened to you. Why? What was their end game? I had a reputation as, a, as an amateur photographer. 
and I had a little dark room set up in my house. And uh, if you know anybody who has the hobby of photography, you know how irritating they can be because they always have a camera and they're always taking pictures of stuff. And I was that guy. So I had a reputation of being a photographer. The whole purpose of this exercise, I believe, I think they knew exactly what I saw. I, I don't think for a minute that, that, was, that they were surprised by that at all. I think that that was just routine. The purpose of this exercise was to determine, did I have a 36 exposure roll of film of this thing? I wish I had. God, I wish I had. But, you know, and again, speaks to the power of these things, their control over us. As much as I love photography, through the entire process, the thought of picking up a camera and taking a photograph never crossed my mind. I actually left my camera at home, but Toby brought his. Toby brought his camera, and it was in a backpack not a foot away from where he was lying. He could have picked that up anytime and, and taken pictures of this thing. Neither one of us thought of it. And I've heard that from other people say, you know, I had my phone in my pocket. I could have taken a picture of this, and it never crossed my mind. Yeah. So that, that I think, was the object of the exercise, to make sure I didn't have film. So there was no proof, no evidence left over afterwards that it was very much an experience that you had with, with your friend. And I'll just uh, give my friend a mention, Gareth, Gareth Scorer. He's a photographer. So if anyone's looking for a photographer in, in, the, in the UK, he is that guy that's always got the camera on him. So maybe one day he'll have that experience or sighting and have that very, very good expensive camera with a nice lens to take a picture yes. of it. Um how did this then have an impact on your life? We're, we're at that point, eight weeks out from the incident. You mentioned Toby's been shipped away to Japan. Your relationship with him sort of ended after that experience, didn't it? It, it changed things for you. And then it, it did. how did this impact you through the decades? Um, real quick, let me go through the last time I saw Toby, and that was... Um, we had a no contact order, but we both lived in NCO housing on the base. And uh, I really didn't want to talk to the guy, but I felt like I owed him goodbye, best wishes, nice working with you, shake his hand. I felt like I owed him that for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I also in the back of my mind thought, you know, if I could just see Toby again, have a couple words with him, maybe we could, maybe I could put this to bed in my mind. Maybe I could come away from this feeling better. Maybe it would help me heal. Um, because I came, I came away from this fractured on, on many levels. Uh, and so did my friend. So I stopped by his house. I went up to his door. Same door I'd been through a hundred times. Knocked on it. Like I always did. Opened the door and said, hey guys, it's me. Um, I saw his wife first. They were packing. And she was rude. She said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know. I'm just here. I just want to say goodbye to you guys. Wish you well. Toby must have heard me because he came walking around a corner from the bedroom to a long hallway that read to the vestibule of their house. And Toby was just, um, he was one of these guys, he was real meticulous about his appearance. I mean, he always had a good haircut. He always had nice clothing. He, you know, he always looked good, even if they were just playing volleyball or something. He always, you know, kept a good appearance. And he walked around the corner. And I mean, I cut up some slack. He was in the middle of moving. Um, but he looked like hell. He just, his hair was all wonky and he hadn't shaved. And um, he was wearing a dirty T-shirt and jeans. He was barefoot. And I just never had seen him like that. And he kind of walked up to me subdued and uh, we're about two feet apart. And I, it was awkward. I held my hand out to shake his hand and we missed each other and then managed this awkward handshake. And I said, hey man, I just uh, wanna wish you well. I know you're going to Japan. I just uh, appreciate working with you. Uh, and that was about all I said. And he, uh, I'm six foot even, he's about five, eight. And he looked up at me and he said, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it happened. You're not losing your mind. It happened. And he said, 
yeah, but why us? And I said, man, I don't, I don't have a expletive. I don't have a clue. And I ran out of there, ran back to the car and went home. And uh, while I hope to get some peace by shaking his hand and telling him goodbye, I, I didn't get that at all. It was quite the opposite. It was anxiety. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, and we were, we were good friends, but I was, I was glad to see him go. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how to process that. I have trouble with that today, but that was, that was my feeling. That were the emotions that I experienced. I'd like to thank User Interviews for sponsoring this episode. When I first started promoting User Interviews a few months ago, I had a wonderful response from many of you out there who got on board early and earned some extra dollars during what's a tough financial time. User Interviews connects researchers with real people like you, quality participants who earn money for their feedback on real products. Right now, there's a high demand for software developers and engineers to give feedback on products being created for developers. It's free to sign up in less than five of our Earth Minute you can apply for your first study. Most studies are less than an hour and pay over $60. Some studies pay several hundred dollars for a one-on-one interview. You get to share your opinion on top brands such as Adobe, Spotify, Intuit, Amazon and many more. I've even signed up myself and the process was very quick. If you're ready to earn extra income from sharing your expert opinion, head over to userinterviews.com slash hello to sign up and participate today. Do you feel that separation from you both was going to help you potentially move on from the incident? Did you want to forget it, move past it, and just get on with your life? I don't think it was, again, I don't think it was done for our benefit. Um, I don't think that they wanted us together to bolster each other's story and had that conversation. Did you see what I saw? Yeah, well, let's draw it. Let's compare drawings. Let's see. I don't think they, they wanted that to happen. And, uh, you know, I have, I mean, I have a theory. These things either work arm in arm with our armed forces, which I think is highly likely, work together towards some shared goal, or maybe these things just come and go and our government can't do anything about it. And they take people and they take cattle and do as they will. And uh, that's just the way it is. One of, the, one of those two, I think, is, is the truth, but I don't know which one. As we start to get towards more modern day, you, you wait until 2018 to write the book. What, did. what happened at that point that for you, it was time to put down the story? Oh, I, in 2012, I retired early. I retired in 2012 and moved to Dallas. We got kids, grandkids here and uh, got up one morning. I couldn't bear weight on my right knee. And uh, I went to the the VA hospital. I get all my medical care for the Veterans Administration. And um, they x-rayed my knee. And uh, when they did, they found a foreign object in my knee. Uh, there's an object, a square object about the size of a fingernail with two wires attached. Uh, that's above my right knee. And then below my right knee in my calf muscle was a collection of uh, bones in a florette pattern, symmetrical. Um, and uh, the radiologist had no idea what those were. And... Uh, he said, you know, you had to be in some kind of accident, you know, you to get this foreign object above your knee. I don't know how that got into your body. There has to be a scar. And we got into this back and forth because I told him, doctor, I don't have a scar. I've never injured that knee other than a skin knee as a kid. Hmm. And he examined my knee and there is no scar. And he looked confounded. He looked stunned. And... I said, well, doctor, let me ask you, how often is it that you see someone with a foreign object like this in their body and there not be a corresponding scar? He said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist for 23 years. He says, I have no idea how this thing got into your body. So I asked him to show me the x-rays. He showed me the x-rays and I was just absolutely devastated um, because I was trying to I thought that I had lived this all out 
and it was for the most part over with. Um, I had no intentions of telling anybody anything, but seeing these things just validated that they put their hands on me. These things put their hands on me. Uh, that it wasn't just a sighting. I just didn't just see a flying saucer. There was something more intimate to this encounter. And, um, I, in 2016, I thought, you know, four years later, I thought, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write this book, uh, and I'm going to tell people what happened to me. Uh, and I, I couldn't do that if I were working for the government. I mean, and my peers in the legal community, uh, you know, it was interesting. A couple of them were supportive of me. You know, I believe you. You know, you're not the kind of guy to tell a tale. Hmm. Uh, but I had a lot of uh, my friends email me like, what is wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? If this really happened to you, why would you come out and say such a thing? You know, people think you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. Like, Well, you know, so be it. You know, find out who your friends really are. Uh, but I'm glad I came forward. I, I'm shocked that I expected to sell 100 books, you know, and have a box of 50 in my garage or something. I expected it to be a cathartic experience, which it was. What I didn't expect was to sell tens of thousands of copies in 13 countries and have all of these people email me uh, with these stories and, you know, pour their heart out to me and say, I've never told this to another human being. And they tell me their story. And uh, that's a privilege to have people share that with you. So, and this was all unexpected. I think for many people, you're one of those 10,000, aren't you? Because they've had a similar experience to you, uh, unique to them, but they've not had the time, the ability, the capability or the will to write it down and you've done that for them. And I think when they see those words on paper, that resonates with them. People like Whitley Strieber, when they come out and tell their story, when far less well-known people like members of the Experiencer group share their story. It resonates with a lot of people. There are many people who, on this podcast, I try and cover the range of UFOs, the UFO topic. Some people are very nuts and bolts and don't really have an interest in the abduction phenomena and will still say, while they believe in extraterrestrials or, or whatever that may entail, the abduction experience is largely made up. Yet there are this huge number of people, it's not a minority, it's a big number, who claim that it's very real and not only that, but it's happened to them as well. So I think it means a lot when people see something like yours and it resonates with them, it, it picks up and it takes a life of its own. And has that helped you since the book was published deal with the incident better, knowing there are so many more folks like you out there? Oh, it's unbelievably helpful. And you know what I did is I, I, I wrote a second book uh, called The Reckoning and uh I had all of these stories. I, I boiled them down to about 400 that were just credible stories from people that uh, uh, I felt were truthful. And uh, I chose 25 of what I thought were the best stories, and I put them in the book. Um, some, some asked to be anonymous. Some said, use my name. I don't care. Um, but there are some incredible stories out there because uh, the stuff is happening, and it's happening more than we know. Because I think a lot of people don't remember, can't remember, uh, maybe have no recall of it until they're in their 60s. And then suddenly it's like, boom, something snaps. And like, oh, yeah, that camping trip, I remember. I think that that happens. So One of the people you were connected with in the last few years was Tom DeLong. Am I correct on that one? Yes. Tom DeLong, Lou Elizondo, Jim Simivan, um, the whole crew uh, from To the Stars Academy. Uh, my book had been published for 60 days and I got a call from Tom DeLong. And I'm embarrassed to say, I, I didn't know who he was. And I answered the phone and he said, hi, Terry, it's Tom DeLong. And I'm like, you know, I saw it, it, my phone, it said LA and I, I got friends in LA and I'm like, well, how you doing, Tom? And, uh, and he said, uh, yeah, I got, uh, some people here with me and uh, Lou Elizondo, and we'd like to talk to you about your book. Um, and they were very kind to me. And um, Lou Elizondo came and spent two days in Texas at my house. Uh, 
talking about this. And uh, there was another member of their team I, that asked me not to use his name, so I won't, uh, who came and uh, reviewed some medical things with me. Um, so Tom DeLong and his crew, uh, especially Lou Elizondo in particular, um, were, uh, were, were very kind. And uh, I, think, uh, I think we'll be hearing from them soon. Well, two of the Stars Academy went their separate ways in the sense, obviously, that Lou has left, Chris Mellon left, and uh, Jim Semivan has still stayed on board with Tom DeLong. Um, hopefully, they continue to make some progress in the UFO field. I know Tom and Jim are now focusing largely on the entertainment side of the company, but with a yeah. view to still get the UFO message out there through books, through movies, through TV series, and that's still on the horizon, so... But that's good to know, though, that they, they did help. And obviously, Lou has his own book coming out, hopefully, late in 2023. is still the, the, the publishing aspirational date, I believe. I think I can say that. Not that it's a secret, but I think that's just what they're working towards. Um, and that's, that's one that should be interesting as well. And we know Lou has spoken to people like yourself, to the Bledsoe's, you know, the relationship with Tom DeLong, Chris Mellon and his work. So... That's one to look forward to. Uh, listen, Terry, you've been great with your time and I've got a few listener questions I want to get to. I'd love to ask you one more question from myself before we get to those listener questions. What do you say to anyone listening to this now who, like you, has had an incredible experience that they can't quantify, they don't know who to talk to about it, what would you recommend they do? That they find someone to talk to. I, I, and I, I know that that's a vague answer. Um, in the United States, I know that there is a, a group called MUFON, Mutual UFO Network. Um, it had some controversy. Um, but you can usually find good people at, uh, at one of those meetings. I, I spoke at the MUFON uh, uh, meeting in uh, Dallas, and that's where I met my friend who's the psychiatrist. You know, and I asked him, I said, what's a psychiatrist doing at this MUFON meeting? And he says, well, you know, when I was in medical school, they taught me that people that see UFOs are delusional. And he says, but I've been practicing uh, medicine for 30 years. And he said, I found that in my psychiatric practice that I have a lot of people come to me that are, they may have depression, they may have some type of mental issue that needs addressing, but they're not delusional. They're not people that are going to have hallucinations. They are as sane as you or I. And he says, it just now I, I believe there has to be something to this stuff. So, uh, you know, talk, talk to somebody, uh, email me, you know, uh, read, read some books, uh, email people, get out, get out there and talk to people, uh, and know that you, for God's sake, you're not alone. Uh, don't, don't, don't fret that you're, uh, uh, yeah, some people might say, oh, I think you're crazy, but so what? So what? No, that's good advice. Listen, let's get to a few questions then, Terry. You, but like I say, you've been wonderful with your time, and people will never know this, but we had some tech issues at the start. So we were on with each other for almost 30 minutes before we hit record, so I do appreciate it. Um, listen, uh, first question from long-time listener Dave Smethurst. Does Terry think what he saw in the craft in terms of body parts and such you mentioned, obviously, the animal you saw. Were they real or potentially generated illusions for you? And what do you think that others are potentially doing with these if they are real? You know, that's an interesting question. I went back and forth with that for a long time thinking, did this really happen to me? Or was this a delusion that was planted in my mind? Maybe by, maybe by the Air Force. Um, you know, I had the feeling that this camping trip was somehow orchestrated. You know, I got nothing to point to that to verify that as fact, but um, I've often wondered, could what I have seen have been all, all a delusion, all um, implanted in my mind? Um, so I guess that that's, that's possible. I keep referring to the level of influence that these things have over us. 
I think they can make us see whatever they wanted to make us see. Uh, a follow-up from Dave, same uh, same listener. Has anyone from the military or intelligence community reached out to you and given you any off the record any information off the record about your experience? Yes, and no. Okay. Obviously, we've no. just mentioned that you've spoken to Tom DeLong, spent some time with Lou Elizondo, and some of his colleagues. Those are probably yes. some of the people that you would want to be talking to about these kind of experiences. Um, Absolutely. But other people from other agencies uh, have knocked on my door and uh, expressed interest in talking to me. Um, I've had some crazy things happen. I've had a, you know, a flurry of helicopters over my house. Weird. I mean, it's just... Um, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But yeah. Question from Ryan Terry. Ryan asks, when you were in the hospital and the officer came in to talk to you about the event, how do you think he had found you and how did he know about your particular experience? He actually answered that question. He said uh, that Toby had a backpack and inside that backpack he had taken a permanent marker and wrote his name and his address. And his address was Whiteman Air Force Base. That's where we lived. We were living in NCO housing on the base. And uh, the um, park rangers, quote, found our little campsite uh, and then tracked down, you know, Toby's uh, backpack with the phone number in it, called the base, and uh, Base commander got involved, OSI got involved, and that's the way the whole thing broke loose. Uh, Do you think they had... Had we taken that... Sorry, on you Who knows? If we'd have taken that backpack, they may have never found us, but I think they would have anyway. I I think that there was no escaping. I I wonder, is Ryan also alluding to, and I'd be curious to know, do you think they had any direct or indirect knowledge of there being an alien abduction or some sort of encounter? based off of any military equipment they had, any monitoring they were doing, or even directly witnessing it themselves? I absolutely have no doubt. When these two OSI agents came into my hospital room and started talking to me, there's no doubt in my mind these guys knew what I saw. You know... At the end of their interrogation, the younger officer, the captain, left. And uh, it was just me and this major in the room. And he had turned the lights on during the interrogation, which really hurt my eyes. He reached over and turned the lights off. And the head of my bed was near the door. And he had his hand against the door. So he would feel it if somebody started to come in. And he got down next to my ear and he asked me, he said, uh, I know what you saw. And I know you saw something and I think you know what I'm talking about. And I didn't know how to answer. And I, I didn't answer. And he says, oh, yeah. He says, I think you know what I'm talking about. And he says, All I want to know is how many pictures you took of it. And, you know, without thinking, I blurted out, I never took a single photograph. And he just smiled because he just got from me an admission. And uh, he seemed very satisfied with that. No, I think they knew they knew everything. I don't know how they knew it, but they knew everything. And a final question that I think follows on nicely from that and is a nice way to wrap up uh, from Newman. Newman asks, how far does Terry think uh, a potential cooperation between the US government and ETs could go? And even further than that, do you think there are, are any credence to the claims that there are secret treaties and agreements in place to regulate alien abductions? You know, there there are three possibilities here. And that is, like I said earlier, that we're working hand in hand with ET towards some shared goal, you know, and maybe we're trading uh, human lives for 
engineering secrets. That's a possibility. Uh, and number two is that we could be working under a written treaty that defines the parameters of their behavior and our behavior. We don't shoot them down. You know, they get to take uh, 50 people a year from this park and 20 people from this park. And it's all laid out in a written agreement and handshake. And that's what that's. There's a uh, controlling document that states our agreement. Third possibility is that they have the ability to do what they want, when they want, at any time. They may have spoke with our government and said, we're in control, we're going to do what we want. Don't mess with us. And, uh, and they do that. They do what they want. And any one of those three possibilities are as plausible as the other. But I, my gut tells me that they do what they want because they can. Because I think they're that high above us. Because of that thing that I had that interaction with for a moment, just momentarily, um, these things are so far above us that um, it, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's almost like, why would they bother to negotiate with, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to take a, a, a lion off the Serengeti plane and, and implant them with a tracking device and, uh, you know, give them a medical examination, you know, do you, do you communicate with them first? No, you don't. You just do it. You just do it. You know, and there's that disparity of intellect. That, that disparity of intellect is huge. Think about this. We've been human sentient beings in our current form for say 200,000 years, the numbers are all over the place, but in 200,000 years, we've domesticated dogs and cats, cattle, sheep. Uh, but like, you know, my cat, um, we have a relationship, but after 2000, pardon me, after 200,000 years of domesticating animals, we still can't communicate with them. I can walk in and say, food served, my cat will immediately know what I'm talking about. That's more of a Pavlovian response. But I can't walk in and say, hey, pal, how was your day? What'd you do today? There's no communication at that level. And these things may be that high above us that, that that's the right analogy because we can't tell them how our day went because we don't have the ability. That's a nice way to, I think, to, to round off, Terry. Just before we go, you did mention you wanted to give a little shout out to a professor. Oh, I did. Uh, professor uh, Peter Cobble of University of Liverpool uh, sent me a nice email today. I, I've got to sit down and return his email. Um, so, yeah, so I have uh, quite a few friends over there on that side of the world. And, uh, you know, my best wishes to everyone. And uh, thank you for being a, a, a great host. I appreciate it. No, hopefully I've done what I can uh, to let you tell your story, not interrupt too much, but there were so many questions that I wanted to get to and try and get to them at the right times as well. Um, I'd love to have you back on to discuss, obviously, the follow-up where you're more generally talking about other folks' abductions. I think there'd be a great conversation there and room for some speculation and some sharing some stories as well. That would be great. Um, how do you want people to best find your work, Terry? Is it through the website or would it be Amazon or, or others? You know, just uh, just email me. You know, there's some photographs that are interesting on the website terrylovelace.com. If you want to, if you want to talk to me or tell me your story or ask me a question, it's just terrylovelace at yahoo.com, um, and uh, drop me a line. And you can also get the book in audio form as well. That's a popular question I get these days whenever I've got a guest on talking about a, a printed work. There are some folks who just with modern technology, like the audio format, the book is obviously available in that format too. So make sure you grab yourself yes. a copy if you haven't already. And Terry, uh, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thanks for joining me. We will. We will. Thank you, Andy. Best wishes. Best wishes to your audience.
designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd have some champagne. That UFO podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. Zencaster is the all-in-one podcasting platform that allows you to remotely record and produce your show with the highest quality audio and video. All from the main dashboard, you can find a full suite of professional tools to get your show created and published in the easiest way possible. You'll always sound at your best as Zencaster's post-production takes the headache out of audio production, setting your loudness and levels while reducing background noise with one click. Zencaster records video up to 4K to give you the perfect picture quality, whether you're in a shed or a studio. Then Zencaster will distribute your video podcast in crisp 1080p to all video podcast players. The biggest feature for me folks as I get the local file recording from each guest so their audio always comes through as best as it can regardless of any choppy internet connections go to zencaster.com slash pricing and use code UFO podcast and you'll get 40% off your first three months of Zencaster professional I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs it's time to share your story